Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. What's up, what's up, what's up, everybody? It's another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we got a very interesting episode going on tonight because, well, as always, I'm here in Florida and Jeff is there in Texas. But what part of Texas is Jeff in? Because no, he is not in his normal podcast studio. And for those of you streaming online on YouTube and Twitch right now, you see we have a return guest as well. Joining us on tonight's episode, as always, is Jeff Copsetta. And once again, friend of the show, RJ Nevins. RJ, Jeff, how are you guys doing tonight? Outstanding, but... This, this isn't RJ. This, this is Kevin Bacon. Oh, I thought we would. <laughs> I see the. Oh, I see the resemblance. Uh, you told me that RJ had to pull out the last minute, but I didn't realize Kevin Bacon slid in. Yeah, some some guy pulled up next to us on the beach. Was like Kevin Bacon. I loved you in the. You look like him. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. You look like the Invisible Man. Oh, so you look like the Kevin Bacon from 25 years ago. I guess that's a good thing for you. Maybe not so much for Kevin Bacon. The last, and the last thing this guy said as he drove off was, Kevin's aged pretty bad. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, when I worked in radio, the guys I used to uh, produce a show for used to tell the story how Kevin Bacon came down to one of the other studios to promote the Bacon Brothers band or whatever. And he was he was on base, and I kind of get it, you know, when you're an actor, and a lot of actors and other celebrities they come out with a band or as a musician, you know, people kind of snicker a little bit, kind of like when Chris Jericho came out with Fozzie and all that. And so the the athlete or the actor they they want to put all the emphasis of why they're there on the music and the band, but when he was in the station, he did not want to talk about anything other than his band, the Bacon Brothers. Did not want to talk about any movies, nothing. He was there strictly as a musician that day. And uh, they're all, they would always tell that story how they could not get him to even come in the studio and talk about anything other than his the album he was promoting at the time. So you guys have had a pretty uh, exciting weekend, correct? Yeah, it's been great, man. We're so we're out here at uh, Crystal Beach. It's on the Boulevard Peninsula, just outside of Houston. This is uh, where uh, where RJ spends some of his time when he's. Uh, well, I don't know. You don't really do much anymore. I try to spend as yeah. much as my time as I can out here now. It's a it's a vacation home Chelsea and I lucked up into last year, and um, you know we like to share it with our friends and everybody. So Don, when you coming up? We do a lot of fishing up here too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been getting my teeth kicked in. I think I went out yesterday and caught the world's smallest bass. But yeah, I've been we've been struggling down here between the heat and everything else. So, Jeff kind of gave it a little uh, preview on last week's episode. But, uh, he was talking about what you guys had going on this past weekend. Um, and uh, apparently, the festivities have carried over a little bit. So, first and foremost, <laughs> congratulations once again to you, Mr. RJ, for the uh, success of your project. But, um, you know, we kind of got Jeff's little intake on it. Give us your whole feeling about how how you were able to basically get your show or your, your movie, your short film back into the film festival, because you thought, you know, it was great that you got all the accolades you did during COVID, but to be fair, you know, as far as you're concerned, your, your people, your crew, your cast didn't get to enjoy the, the film festivity circuit because it, everything was remote and you kind of, you know, said, Hey, can we 
have another shot that just so our guys can get their just desserts and and the accolades they all so justly deserve yeah right man well you know we had um before right when COVID hit we had a film festival that was happening in huntsville texas called the prison city film festival mm-hmm. it was the only it was the only one that was live you know right when COVID hit they went ahead and pushed through some of that um, and then everything got shut down. I guess this would have been in March of 2020 or so. Um, so that was really our first live festival that we got to go to. Then everything else was just pretty much um, all these film festivals kind of pivoted and went into a, uh, you know, kind of a virtual mode. And so a lot of the film festivals that we participated in in 2020 were all kind of virtual. Yeah. Um, and super glad that a lot of those film fest- festivals were able to, to do that. Right. Cause it, uh, it helped them in a sense, but let me tell you, returning back to the Hill country film festival in Fredericksburg, where we actually shot a lot of the film there. Um, this, this past weekend was, it was such a joy, man, because the city of Fredericksburg, um, just helped us so much when it came to shooting the film and, you know, the, the city just rallied around us and, so many of our casting crew are, you know, from Austin or, you know, surrounding areas, Dallas and Houston. So we were able to get, you know, quite a few people together to come up there and actually see a live screening. And I'm, I'm trying to think how many people actually showed up for our block of short films. I'm going to say there were 150 people in there, give or take. Yeah, yeah. Give or take. I, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, towards the... Uh, I consider that a great success, man, where people want to come and uh, come to a film festival, get crammed into a theater and, you know, um, and brave the elements, so to say, to see our film. And, you know, we got some amazing feedback at the end of it. Uh, A lot of folks came up to us afterwards and just told us, you know, it was one of the best movies they saw there at the film festival and the accuracy behind it. And um, just that it was a breath of fresh air, you know, because we've, We've always portrayed Walking Point as a film of love, loss, and victory that sure. you know doesn't necessarily shy away from you know family, faith, and, and patriotism. And you know we had a lot of vets in the uh, in the audience, and a lot of those guys came up and, and shook our hands and shook Jeff's hands, and uh, even told Jeff that the accuracy of some of the uh, the stuff in the film, as far as you know the costume design, wardrobe, all that stuff. He said it was better than Spielberg's ever done. <laughs> and so that is a compliment to this guy. And I don't know. You want to grab that? Let's let's. Talk yeah, about I was going to say, I, I just got a photo sent to me about 25 minutes ago that I was not aware of. He got you. And so. so uh, we were talking about Prison City Film Festival before, right? Yep. And, you know, we never really had the opportunity to see Jeff until this this time. And so. Uh, Jeff won an award at that Prison City Film wow. Festival for for the best, yeah, best uh, best wardrobe, and so that's tremendous when you're doing a historical film with that needs, you know. Well, Jeff, I hope you know you're sharing like zero point zero point one two percent because I did help tie some leggings on <laughs> when you guys were down here. So just zero point zero one percent of that goes to me because <laughs> I made sure those leggings were laced it, up nice. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a group award. I mean, we all it really is. 
you know, and, and that's definitely one of the kind of the, the, the common denominators between all the cast and crew on Walking Point is everybody kind of did a little bit of everything, you know, and, you know, that was my first uh, big production or anything like that. But just hearing and seeing some of the other actors worrying about continuity, you know, worrying mm-hmm. about set deck, things like that. I mean, and like you said, everybody was kind of pitching in on costume and everything. So. Yeah, I mean, it's you could just tell. I mean, look at us. We're sitting here now three years later. I can't believe it's been three we're, years. <laughs> it's, it's so insane. Yeah, I mean, and and yeah. let me let me pause real quick because one of the things I want to say before you brought up the award, which is awesome. I saw that photo momentary, uh, moments ago. But one of the things I want to back up real quick is one of the things I think a lot of people can uh, definitely appreciate now that maybe we all kind of took for granted before is the movie going experience. So many of us have gotten so um, used to um, just watching things at home. Even before COVID, a lot of people are just watching movies at home on their TV because it's, they can pause when they need to. They don't have people talking to them. But when you're in that theater experience and you're sharing that experience with other people and you know, you can watch a movie four or five times in a setting by yourself or maybe with close friends. I'm sure RJ, you've experienced this when you go through production, post-production, finalization, colorization, and then you watch it in a theater with live people, you you pick up the energy on certain parts of the movie that maybe you didn't pick up on before because, once again, you're, you're there with just you and a select group of people. But when you have a larger group of people who've never seen it or just may have seen it but not in that environment, it's just it changes the movie dramatically, and it definitely is – is important, especially to a project like yours, to see it in that environment, opposed to everybody just watching it on their couch in their bed on Amazon or whatever sources they've had access to during COVID. So congratulations on that important feature right. of it too. I appreciate it, man. That was absolutely well said. It's it's a movie that was meant to see in the theaters, for sure. It, it's nice and fun to watch it on Amazon and whatever other avenues it is out there, but seeing it in the theater... And seeing it with an audience is, is it's it's pretty special. Yeah, and it was neat too to see. There were certain scenes that when we first got to see it, when we kind of preview, we had our private screening down in in Houston. Actually, yeah. uh, there was a few things that you know, there's there's a few scenes that make people chuckle, and it was neat to see the same thing now a couple of years later in a whole different environment, a different you know, at a film fest with the public around, and it was the same things kind of striking a chord of making people chuckle or. You know, people jumping out of their seats, the, the suspense, the all of a sudden, you know. So, yeah, you're right. That That's I mean, that, that's what you do it for. Right. I mean, uh, I'm not going to put words in your no, mouth. But, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, yeah. it's you know, I, that's certainly the selfish part of it. Right. I mean, that's like you do it for yourself for that. But in the in the grand scheme of things, we obviously did it kind of cement that, that time in history. And I couldn't think of a better way to to have one of our first real film festival live screenings. I mean, really, I, I assume that's like my second one, the second one for the film. And to, to bring it back to Fredericksburg was pretty, like I said, it was very special. Now, Jeff, this is your first, you know, project of this magnitude. Obviously, you've done some TV work as well. But is it was it kind of weird for you um, seeing it three years later in that environment? Did, you, did, did it seem like yesterday or does it seem like, well, that was a, a lifetime ago? Uh, it it definitely brought back a lot of memories, some things that I'd kind of forgotten about. You know, not not so much on screen, just the stuff behind the scenes. Some of the things that I just 
just kind of forgot just, you know, in, in working in the film. And I was trying to prepare myself because, you know, they had a Q&A afterwards and, you know, trying to prepare myself for what they what they might ask or what they may want me to talk about. And it definitely kind of brought some things back. But I mean, it, it really I mean, in that environment, um, it I don't know, it, it seemed like it always did. I mean, I actually got to bring my brother with me to the film fest and let him see it for the first time. Now he screened it uh, a couple years ago at a film fest in New Jersey. He got to watch, you know, it was a virtual film fest and he actually got to be in person with me this time in Fredericksburg. And I looked over and right when it was over and I said, dude, it never gets old. Like That's it, awesome. it's going to pull your heartstrings every time you're going to fight back the tears you're, you know, like I said, you're going to, there's going to be something that's going to make you chuckle every single time. And it does, I mean, it's, you know, we talked about last episode, Saving Private Ryan. You, you can watch that movie a hundred times and it, it doesn't get old. You know what's going to happen. You can quote it, but it doesn't get old. And that's when you know it's a powerful film. Sometimes you see a film like I saw it twice. I'm good, <laughs> you know, but Walking Point's not one of them. You know, we saw, we had one of our, one of our producers actually, Tracy DB who had saw a little bit of some of the cuts uh, prior to, but this was her first time seeing it. Really? First time seeing the final, you know, cut version of it. Yeah, because she, she didn't want to watch it on Amazon Prime or any of that. She wanted to see it at the theater. She wanted and, the experience. Um, she was, yeah, she was really excited to get there. And she's a producer and a writer and director as well in Austin. So she was so happy to be able to, to get back to that. Well, and, and the nice thing too, Jeff, you, you mentioned a good point, which is um, it it didn't seem, you know, it's it seemed new. It didn't seem out of date, quote unquote, which is very, very, and which goes to your the whole award for, you know, the wardrobe and the authenticity of it. Um, the reason to save a private Ryan, a walking point, uh, movies like those don't feel dated is because the accuracy was there. Whereas if you watch like... Um, Oh, little bit out of the spectrum, but the show Mash, you know, the show took place in the fifties, but all the actors had seventy style haircuts. So when you go back and watch it, watch it, it feels dated because their haircuts weren't accurate. They had the seventies big bushy haircut. If you go watch, um, oh, what the hell? They just redid the, oh, the they, the movie, but they redid the TV show. Whatever twenty one, oh, Catch twenty, what? Catch twenty two. Catch twenty two. Um, yeah. you go back and watch that movie, it had a seventies feel all over it. Even though it was World War II based, some of the hairstyles just it had the feeling of nineteen seventy all over. When you go back and watch it now, it feels like a dated project. Whereas a hamburger hill doesn't. Um a longest day kinda has a little little dated feel to it, but the quality, especially World War II and historical based movies. They don't feel dated if the wardrobe and the hair and everything and the authenticity was done properly because it should only feel like the era in which the, the movie took place. It should only feel like 1944, 1972. But if you're watching something that's supposed to take place in 40s, perfect example. It's way out of way out of the left field. Every Elvis movie ever made. The guy's 1793. He's a cowboy, but he's got his 1950s pompadour door and sideburns. And so when you go back and watch those, even though they weren't serious films, but the fact that he's supposed to be a cowboy, but he's wearing his 1970s pompadour he had on stage three days ago, it feels dated. And so that's it's very important um, that those things get done right when making a historical film. Uh, you know, we had when we were filming it at the museum there in Fredericksburg. 
several of the uh, some, several other guys came up to us um, and were like, you know, better make it right because we'll know if you don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I specifically remember that coming from certain people, and I'm like, all right, well, no pressure. <laughs> and some of your main actors in that movie had long hair before shoot. Yeah, and they had yeah, the, they mean, changed it up. Some of them still had long hair during the shoot. So you wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't get a cut because Cliff, uh, who plays Corporal Gregory, you see him mainly in that, that the tent scene there at the beginning. Yeah, his his hair was long and bushy, but there was nothing we could do about it except put it up in the helmet and get it as tight as we possibly could because he had another role that he was filming a week later that he had to have that hair. For. Yeah, that. well, I mean, that makes sense, but, but still, it was so well done. So... <sighs> What's what's new on your horizon? You got any new projects going on there, RJ? Well, we're we're in the process right now of um, finishing up a pilot script for Walking Point. We're we're going to start pitching it. You know, we were going to go after it as kind of a, uh, a feature film, but we're gonna we're gonna push it more of like a seven hour um, limited series. I think that can kind of make its way from the beginning, the family giving the dog away. It being trained by Emily and then making its way to uh, North Carolina. Then we're gonna get get after it and really start start pitching it really hard. How is the um, is this your first time really delving into the comedy side of things, or is this something you've been doing a while? Because obviously drama is so much different than when you're writing a comedy. Right. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I've always wanted to write a comedy. I have a um, I have a comedian friend of mine, Tommy Barrett, who's helping. Uh, write the script and we're also producing a stand-up comedy thing with him in november here in houston and so um yeah it helps comedy is much different to write i mean i I tell people all the time i you know a good drama script something like that i think can be written by a single writer but comedy you know it, it takes two or three people to write it because in the midst of writing your comedy you have to make sure that your your timing is impeccable and that your your jokes actually land so i mean you have to go through several rewrites several table reads to make sure that you know the timing is proper and and then casting is everything that to a comedy. that is so true i don't think a lot of people realize how much how many of their famous their favorite sorry comedians or even talk show hosts like for example when jimmy kilmel hosts the oscars he's got an entire room of writers you know, they're working on this stuff for weeks all the way up until like an hour before they go on. It's not just him writing jokes. He's got a whole group of people. There's comedians who actually have a group of writers who write their stand-up act for them. And so it's it's definitely, you know, if you can get a group of people who, who, who know your voice and the way you want to write things, it's definitely, definitely is important to that whole the aspect. But going back to your um, desires, which one to do with Walking Point, what a better time to try to do that because there's so many media outlets now. You got the, you know, you got the Netflix, the Hulu, the Disney Plus, the Everybody Plus, this Plus, that Plus. There's so many different avenues. Uh, there's so many different places that who are going to, you know, want content, want stellar content. Whereas in the past, you know, going all the way back to the day when you had three major networks, it was next impossible to get a project, and then things spread out. It got a little easier, but still next impossible. Whereas now. You know, you got people who have services who are looking, dying for great content. And so um, yeah. now's the. I'm thinking you'll be able to find a good home for it. Yeah. I, I think there's, like you said, there's a lot of them looking for some pretty solid content. 
And, um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of the content now isn't necessarily, uh, you know, World War II based kind of, uh, you know, faith family and all that stuff. But I think certainly, you know, I, I, there's there's avenues for it. And I think people are really looking for it. So you know, it's a special story and somebody's going to realize that and somebody's going to really want to pick it up and run with it and help help produce it into a much larger project. They're going to need a military advisor. They're going to need somebody like Jeff. They're going to need somebody to tie on some leggings. I know a guy, so. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. But, uh, no, it's just, now's the time. Uh, Wow, somebody's in here blowing up uh, our chat session. Oh, yeah, let me, uh, that's no good. Uh, Sorry, looking at that, let me just say, so your audience can hear it. I've said it before on this show, but it was... It was such a pleasure and honor to have you show up on our set down in Bukilia, Florida. You helped out tremendously, man. It was it was it was just great to have you there, man, and and to show up and bring some stuff with you, and just to help us out. Oh, the pleasure was all mine, man. It 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 actually helped me out because one, obviously, where Jeff and I are now, and two, the experience. But uh. Two and a half years later, I found myself doing background work on uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's project, The Right Stuff, which is on Disney Plus. And so I already had some onset experience. You know, I knew how to stay the hell out of people's way, pretend like I'm supposed to be there. And uh, it worked out well for me. Sadly, not to go on a rant, but I'm going to go on a rant anyhow. Not that it matters now. But sadly, politics works so much into everything, right? And so when COVID was going on, I live in Florida. We have Ron DeSantis who just, by the way, had the department of education, cut all the teachers, a thousand dollar checks for uh, going to work and doing a good job. But that's not the point. But the point is, you know, we were getting kind of getting some grief about being open, kind of like how Texas was. Right. Right. And, uh, obviously Florida, Florida actors, there were so many people involved in that project, the right stuff. I don't know if you guys seen it on, it's on Disney plus, but just the background actors, the set locations, all that stuff. Big production. Yeah. Big production. Well, when all the COVID stuff was going on and people were complaining that we weren't doing mask enforcements, the big announcement was that they moved the, pr- the production for season two to California. And you're like, well, that doesn't make much sense. Tax revenues wise. Not that it matters now because Disney Plus put the kibosh on the thing, but you just kind of no, got the whiff. Of, yeah, I was going to say, you kind of got the whiff that it was a political move at the time because, you know, we we're kind of hearing the same thing about some of the stuff. People weren't happy with the way things were going in Georgia and people were pulling productions. But it's like, really? You're going right. to take, just because you have a problem with our governor, you're going to take money away from extras, uh, food services, you know, right. so yeah. many people involved in that. But, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a good point, and that's the really unfortunate side of it all. I mean, I, I, I tell people all the time that if, if you're going to be in the film industry, you, you're going to have to embrace every side of the aisle, every person you can think of. You're going to have to just be – you're going to have to be able to accept diversity in mm-hmm. any aspect that you can possibly think of, whether it's political, whether it's gender, whether it's race. You just – and if you can't get on board with it, then, you know, that's that's your own you're, you're your own roadblock. Yeah. And uh, I'll say that all the time because the, the folks that helped make Walking Point, we had I mean, there were so many people from so many different spectrums on there. And and we had just 
it felt like it was supposed to feel. And it, it is sad when you see people using that political platform and, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's the right word to say, but punishing those people that just want to make some money and they're unable to because and of it makes some art. the higher power. And that and that's that's really unfortunate. And like you said, you know, not only your project, but I mean, just about anything now, you got to have the Big Ten aspect, but it's it's all for the better cause because if you don't have the Big Ten aspect, um, I, th- I truly think that comes out in the final project. I think if you have everybody who's the same mind, same whatever, you're, you're, the final product is not going to be as dynamic. Whereas when you have people all walks of life, all different opinions on things, um, it makes a fuller, better project at the end because everybody has input and good input is good input great input's even better and so why not just listen and work together and come up with the best project possible yeah i completely agree again that's the unfortunate side of the, the political spectrum and you know some of the some of the higher ups at some of those larger studios that make those decisions based on what, what other people are doing in different parts of the country <laughs> It's almost ridiculous to me, but whatever. Dude, hold on, I'm just checking on something. Do 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 do. Talk for a few seconds, Jeff. I'm looking. I may have to go back and record some of the audio off this video because I think when the power flickered, my computer is not recording the audio. Yeah, it's not. That sucks. But I can go back and record it off the YouTube channel. Not good. Well, you know that is the that is the advantage of having us live stream on YouTube because when it's done, YouTube processes the video. It's up there, and then all I got to do is play it on my computer and re-record the show. I've actually had to do that a few times in the past. We're actually in the middle of a thunderstorm down here, so the power went out. But you know it happens. But yeah, well, well, while you're checking on that, uh, I'll just kind of remind our listeners that uh, this weekend marks the anniversary of the first offensive of, Guad- of, uh, of the war when the Marines hit Guadalcanal on the 7th of August, 1942. You know, just uh, uh, ironically, we, uh, you know, after Pearl, we stuck with our Europe first strategy. Uh, although when it came down to it, we, uh, we invaded the Pacific before we invaded North Africa by a couple months. And uh, you know, I always try to do a book review every episode. I don't have a book with me, but for those that are interested, I think one of the best books I've ever read about the Guadalcanal campaign was uh, called Edson's Raiders. And I'm, I was trying to remember the, uh, the author of it. Um, I, I, off the top of my head, I want to say it was Joseph Alexander, but I'm not 100 percent sure. But uh, it, it is really great about it. Uh, you know, Merritt Edson leading the, the first Raider battalion. And of course, the, uh, the ridge that was named after Meredith and because of the battle that they fought on it, trying to hold, uh, you know, what became known as Henderson field, that airfield that was complete, uh, when we invaded and, you know, that whole Solomon's campaign is, is such a, a broad, you could read about the Solomon's the rest of your life and not know it all. You know, that is such a broad campaign. Um, but yeah, so we're, uh, what is that? The 70, 79th anniversary uh, of the first offensive taken by the Americans in World War II. So early August, you know, it's, that's the time to read about about the canal from, you know, in, in, in my opinion, um, before you shift over to reading about Tarawa in November uh, or Operation Torch, one of the two. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there before we got to it. I know we, we, we're talking a lot of, a lot of film 
uh, this episode, which is cool, but I did want to make sure for some of our listeners actually uh, want to hear something historical. Well, it's funny you say that. I, I do I do have something historical, but I was making these funny faces in the camera because I'm looking my bookshelf's directly past my camera, and I have the the cover of that Edson Raider book. I know that picture. I have it in my mind, but I'm sitting there perusing all my Pacific books trying to see if I actually had the book so I could assist you with the author. But anyhow, yeah. on that same topic, I learned... It's interesting to say, you know, there's so much about the uh, the Pacific campaign that you can read every day and not learn everything. And I just heard about something. Sorry, my dog's caught, caught up in my headphone wire. I came across. Are you familiar with Operation, Operation Cherry Blossom at Night? No. Perfect example. Uh, there's a guy on TikTok. He's a military guy like you. Uh, served. He does historical things. And he was talking about Operation Cherry Blossom at Night. And this is a perfect segue. We'll get a little history into this episode. Um, apparently, this was um, scheduled to kick off in um, September 45, but luckily the war ended in August. But uh, I'll just give you the quick synopsis of this. Operation Cherry Blossom at Night, uh, developed by um, I'm sorry, it was Biological Warfare, they wanted to do a, uh, upon the civilian population in the United States. And basically what they're going to do is get fleas and infect them with the plague and then use submarines to launch the barrage balloons that they tried to do with the fire to cause the West Coast to catch on fire, the one that killed Elsie Mitchell. But uh, here we go. During the last months of the war, uh, Japan was preparing for a long-distance attack against the United States with biological weapons. The operation, codenamed Cherry Blossom at Night, called for the use of airplanes to spread plague in San Diego at night. Hence the name. Uh, the plan was finalized on March 26, 1945. Uh, five of the new I-400 class long-range submarines were to be sent across the Pacific Ocean, each carrying three Achi M6A uh, Seria aircraft loaded with plague-infested fleas. The submarines were to surface and launch the aircraft towards the target, uh, to drop the fleas via balloon bombs or crash into the enemy territory. Either way, the plague would then infect and kill thousands of people in the area. The mission was extremely risky for the pilots and submariners and therefore would have been likely to be a kamikaze mission. And then they have a quote of one of the guys. But luckily, the war ended in time. But could you imagine the devastation in, the, in that time if that would actually worked and it would infested Southern California with plague-infested fleas? Yeah, that you know that reminds me so much uh, of an instance that I I witnessed overseas, and we just we have no idea. People here in America have no idea that if you took one thing that happened to the German civilians or Japanese civilians, and you just all of a sudden embed that into here in America in a large city like San Diego, it would be chaos. Yeah. It would be absolute chaos. I mean. We just simply don't know how good we have it. And, and and as much as the war touched us on a personal level, we sent our boys over there. We, you know, we lost so many men. We lost women. Uh, you know, everything had to change. But people need to realize what war is like if it's fought on your doorstep. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the best thing we can do is if you're going to fight a war because you're going to have to, it's going to get dirty. You want to keep the mess over there. You want somebody else to clean up their backyard, not ours, because – we are not prepared for something like that. So yeah, that's, that's interesting history. I didn't know about it. Um, 
you know, just, we've, couldn't you just kill it with, your, with a bunch of flea dog shampoo? <laughs> hearts. I don't think hearts flea and tick. Been <laughs> I mean, maybe we would design like a new anti-aircraft weapon. <laughs> oh, no. Saw, just sprays dog flea <laughs> Instead and of bird shot, flea shot. Giant it's flea collar. Story. It's amazing what warfare brings out, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The I mean, thought process of how to defeat your enemy. And I, yeah, I think it was the Trojans, I believe. Either the Trojans or Carthaginians. One or two that were basically uh, the first people to use biological warfare uh, three or four hundred years BC, you know, third, fourth century, with basically catapulting rotting dead bodies over the city walls of your enemy to, to spread disease. I mean, biological warfare has been around over two thousand years. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's crazy. It's definitely not a uh, a new tactic by any means. Well, I'm gonna, uh, it's only a matter of time. You know, speaking of crazy ideas people come up with, uh, this is an old clip that I produced a while back, but just give me a few me- uh, moments, and this will remind you. This is the um, one of the items that uh, we had someone coming up with for a solution to help uh, basically create bi- uh, animal-based incendiary devices to burn down Japan. Perhaps one of the craziest inventions to come out of World War II was that of Dr. Lytell S. Adams, a dentist from Philadelphia. Apparently at some point, Mr. Adams, or Dr. Adams for that matter, he took a trip down to New Mexico. And it was in New Mexico that he fell in love and was completely fascinated with the New Mexican free-tailed bat. And so when he was down in New Mexico, he saw their abilities, he saw the things they were doing in nature, um, how well they used their hands, and the objects that they were carrying in flight. And so Adams got this idea, if you will, that if he took these bats, got a large number of them, gave them essentially small bombs or grenades, and dropped them over the cities of Japan that were predominantly made up of structures that were made from bamboo, wood, paper, things of that nature, essentially these towns, these cities were very flammable. And so Adams got this crazy idea, well, why don't we get a gangload of these bats, a huge, huge number of these bats, essentially give them little bombs, drop them out of a plane, let them burn the city down, problem solved. And now, believe it or not, this crazy idea damn near came to fruition, and here's how it happened. On January 12, 1942, Adams wrote up a letter outlining his plan, and he sent it to the White House. And I know what you're thinking. Look, it's World War II. There's probably a lot of crazy people out in the country with ideas for weapons to defeat the Germans, to defeat the Nazis. And I'm sure the White House, the Army, the Air Corps, they were probably inundated with these letters. Here's how Dr. Adams got his through. Apparently, Dr. Adams knew and had a first-hand relationship with the First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt. And so he contacted her, said, Hey, I wrote up this letter. I want to send it to you. Please see that it gets seen. So she does. It did. And so President Roosevelt got Adam's letter. I don't know if how much Eleanor persuaded him, if he actually believed in the context of this letter, the content, the idea behind the idea. But he kind of gave it the initial green light. He contacted Adams and said, Look, I'm going to set up a meeting with you and Colonel William J. Donovan, who was the head of wartime intelligence. Now apparently something in this meeting between Adams and Colonel Donovan worked out because the project went ahead as planned. I mean, it got greenlit. They started research and development. They went out and they collected a large number of Mexican free-tailed bats. Once they had all the bats acquired, they started developing small-scale bombs. At a certain point, through trial and error, research and development, the eggheads figured it out. They produced a 17-gram kerosene bomb that was built for the bats to carry and it was tied to their leg by a lanyard. Okay, so now we have our bats, they got their bombs, they got their grenades, whatever you want to call them. They're full of kerosene. 
We've got these flying little incendiary bats now. Cool. How do we deploy them? They went back to the drawing board, got the eggheads together, the engineers. And so what they did next was they built a larger bomb. But instead of a payload of dynamite, TNT, whatever you put in bombs, they filled this damn thing full of bats. And the bats had their kerosene bombs. The next problem was you had to figure out how we're going to transport this large bomb that was full of bats holding little bombs to drop on Japan and burn the whole damn place down. How do we get a bomb full of living animals from point A to point B? Apparently through technology and refrigeration and research. Bats, once they get to a certain body temperature, they go into hibernation mode. So the idea was let's take the bats, put them in the big bomb, holding their little bombs. Let's cool down the big bomb to put them in hibernation mode, strap the bomb to the plane. As it got closer to the target, they'd start to warm up the bomb. They would drop the bomb. The bomb would open up. The bats at this point are now coming out of hibernation mode. They'd fly down to the cities of Japan. And we do it all with 75-year-old technology. But that actually went all the way through development and got greenlit. So talking about crazy plans, the idea to use a bunch of bats to burn down the cities in Japan. You know, I think if I was in charge of that, I, I probably would have had the bats carry a bunch of plague-ridden fleas. That just sounds like it could <laughs> Turnabout's have been a Turnabout's fair play. Actually, yeah, right. actually, we probably could have kept the bats and used them to consume the fleas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear they're using bats for other kinds of biological weapons nowadays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? That was China, though, not Japan. Right. You know, I'm not one. Speaking of that side of the country, sorry, my mixing board here. I'm trying to get my headphones louder. Um, I'm not one here to promote other people's podcasts, but um, we were kind of talking when Jeff was talking about how good we have it here, and, and especially during wartime, people don't realize how good we have it here. Um, go over on Spotify or wherever YouTube and listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. He had a young lady on there named Naomi Park. And Mrs. Park, um, she was 13 in 1993, so, you know, she's roughly our age, Jeff. She escaped North Korea, and uh, she basically was telling people how it is. She still has connections over there, um, basically talking about how it's damn near impossible to get out now. But in 1993, her and her mom were able to escape because, well, they were females escaping into China. And due to the female population in China, it, it was easier to escape back then. But she goes into horrible detail talking about basically um, the regime, they feel they're only responsible for 10% of their population. And so as she got older over here and started getting familiar with our culture, she said when she read the book, The Hunger Games, she said, whoever wrote this, like, this is North Korea, whole hog. And she's talking about, like, back when she was there, 10, 11, um, seeing dead bodies in the street all along the rivers by the train stations, just normal. You have no empathy. In the North Korean language, there's no word for I. It's all we. Um, there's no word for love. There's no word for compassion, nothing like that. And um, since the regime felt that it's only their job to take care of 10% of the population, I mean, the rest of them were starving. And she's telling us horrible stories about how kids would eat rats, but the rats were feeding off the dead bodies, and so the kids would get sick. But long story short, if you want a first-person relatively modern insight to the the majesty of socialism and communism especially over north korea um it's 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 hard to listen to just like it's hard to listen to first-hand accounts of world war ii and the holocaust but she's basically saying that i think over the last four years she said that uh 
one of the main uh, human rights organizations basically said there's nothing you can compare to what's going on in North Korea than the Holocaust. It's literally the, what is going on. And she's, and the sad part is, speaking of China, she said that none of it would be going on right now if it wasn't for China. China's basically flipping the bill for everything over there. But it's super crazy. And so not to be a, a super downer, but, um, you know, if you have some people in your life who have some weird um, opinions on things, maybe lock them in a car for two hours, go on a road trip, and make them listen to that episode of the Joe Rogan podcast because it's not every day you hear someone with firsthand accounts of what's going on in modern-day North Korea. It's pretty uh, – makes you realize how good we have it here and we need to protect what we got. That's right. That's right. Did you mention earlier we had something come through on the mail call? Um, I don't know if we did or not. I don't think so. No, oh. I got you talking about the photo. No, no, <laughs> I don't know what photo it is. But... I hope it's the one with uh, the award. <laughs> yeah, no, so I thought we got something coming in in the chat room or something. I didn't know. No, I actually it was um, it was somebody being a dickhead. And so while I was playing that four minute clip, I was actually in the YouTube chat deleting a bunch of comments that just some random douchebag was putting in there. But uh, uh, yeah, one of those guys. But uh, yep. There's always got to be one of them. There's always one, you know, somebody who who uses the internet as a vehicle to say things that would get them probably but lose all their teeth and a broken nose in a real world environment. Let's just say that. Um, but anyhow, that's the ri- that's the risk you run when you're doing a live stream. You know, there's always somebody. Back in the day, you'd get the Baba Booey phone calls on your radio shows and people calling in. Well, showing my age, RJ, remember the, the fun days of public access television? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, I do. <laughs> I lived in the suburbs of Columbus, and so we had, uh, OSU had one, and you'd get some crazy, crazy stuff on there because, well, they're public access and they didn't face censorship back then. But, yeah, anything else you guys got going on you want to bring up or do you want to do a short? Well, we're already 42 minutes into this, so it wouldn't be really a short episode. But anything else you have on your mind, Jeff? Something I want to plug real quick, just because I saw this film at the Hill Country Film Festival. It was called Rise Above Wasp. It was about the the women, uh, what was the acronym? Air Service Pilots. Yeah, the women Air Service Pilots of World War II. And it was this extremely well done documentary. I'm trying to find the young lady who did it and what her name was right now. It was a... The director is uh, Carol White. Man, it was a great film. So if if anybody, uh, I don't know if it's out online anywhere, if you can find it, it could be on YouTube, Venmo, or Vimeo. Uh, I don't know, but it was really good. We saw it there at the the Hill Country Film Festival, and it is spectacular. It's another one of those great stories of World War II and just history in general that is, you know, one of those... Wow, that actually happened. Yeah, right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm actually flipping through my Instagram as you say that because, you know, one of the great things about social media is it makes us aware of all these awesome World War II reenactment groups out there. But the bad thing is, there's so many of them you can't keep all the names straight. But there is a fantastic group out of California who does WASP, and they do some great impressions. Uh, they always have some fantastic. I was hoping usually I go through my timeline and they're like right there because they're constantly posting. But th- there's a group out of California that does fantastic work when setting up, you know, great uh, 
history impressions, not only that, but displays, uh, pieces, artifacts. Um, and I'll base, I can't remember the name right now, but I'll post it on the page with this episode. So for those of you all listening, just head over to WTSP world war com and click on the uh, link for this page and you guys will see it. And while you're there, please, please, this is more important than it has been before because so many of you are listening that the web host people are getting cranky with the amount of resources we're using on the server. So we had to change our plan. Please like, subscribe, and share us with your friends. Give us reviews on iTunes and all that. But more importantly, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that big orange Patreon link. It's a dollar a month, but dollar, that dollar a month goes a long way to support the channel, support our YouTube pages, and everything else we do. Um, once again, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Sign up for Patreon. It's a dollar a month. You can also buy T-shirts there and uh, find links to our YouTube channel and everything else we do. And... Uh, I just want to thank you guys for continuously supporting the channel and, and uh, supporting the podcast and everything we do. And uh, while you're there, too, uh, open up your Outlook. Send in an email to mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. If you have any topics you want us to cover, you want to submit a request to join us on the show. Jeff and I have said before, you know, we know a lot about a lot, but we don't know everything about everything. And um, we would be more than happy if anybody listening, um, you know, if you think you're up to the task, of educating the audience and just participating in conversation with us for about an hour, please send us an email and uh, we will get it sorted out and we'll zoom you in and you can uh, entertain us and inform us and um, all that good stuff. Anything else you yeah, got on I, your I, side, Jeff? Yeah, I want to, I think I mentioned before and the timing just didn't link up, but I, I, I'd really like to try for our next episode. I want to link up with a buddy of mine that I met who has uh, some one-off original photographs that were taken of Hitler and Goering yes. uh, that were captured in a German camera that was, um, you know, the, the film was not developed until his grandfather brought it home from the war and that the prints have been um, developed. He has, he has the prints, not copies of them, not nice. photographs from another family member. He has the prints from, yeah, it's really cool. So we're going to try to do a, uh, you know, of course, video is the only way to really appreciate that. Uh, so hopefully in our next episode in about a week or so, I'm going to link up with him and, uh, and pick a time when he can talk about, he's really excited. He's telling all of his friends about our podcast. He's going to be on it soon. So yeah, any, any of our listeners have something like that. You've got a neat artifact. You want to share it with us. Like, uh, like Don said, we'll, we'll zoom you in and talk about it and, and educate us the way we try to educate you guys. RJ, do you get anything else you want to plug? You want some people to your Instagram page or YouTube, your, uh, Facebook page, anything like that? Yes, if you wanted to follow Walking Point, it's on social media channels, Facebook, Instagram. It's at Walking Point, the movie. Um, other than that, our production company is Black 17 Productions. It's at Black 17 Productions. Um, other than that, man, I mean, if you if you want to catch the film and watch it, hopefully we got a couple more uh, film festivals coming up that are live. We got one in Franklin, Tennessee, that will be. Um, We'll be screening on November 11th, which is a very special day, wow. as everybody all knows. And so um, we've got that one, and then we, we'll have another one, another screening, I believe, in February at the uh, Austin Revolution Film Festival. And then after that, we're we got to find you a Florida Film stuff. Festival. And after that, you know, after that, we're done with all of our uh, film festival run, and then we'll we'll shut it down. And at that point, we'll decide what we're going to really do with it from from there. At least the the, the short film, we'll decide what we're going to do with that from there. We may put it out on YouTube for the masses to see. We may 
hoarded away. We don't know what we're going to do, but you know, it's a story we want to share. So most likely we're going to put it out to the public for everybody to see. Well, keep us in the loop with uh, the turnaround or the development of the uh, mini series if that if that comes to fruition. And um, for uh, Jeff Copsetta and R.J. Nevins, I'm Don Abernathy. Thank you guys for joining us for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. And we will talk to you all next week. This has been a digital 410.